know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on the podcast, we are excited to welcome back Professor Scott Strauss. Professor Strauss is a professor in both the political science and international studies departments here at the UW-Madison and is also the new chair of the political science department. Professor Strauss specializes in the study of genocide, political violence, human rights, and African politics. In addition to teaching two very popular undergraduate courses on the politics of human rights and the comparative study of genocide, Professor Strauss has authored, co-authored, and edited a long list of publications and books, among which include the recent Making and Unmaking Nations, War, Leadership, and Genocide in Modern Africa, which has won four awards, including the 2018 Grawemeyer Award for Ideas Improving World Order. Needless to say, we were thrilled to have Professor Strauss back on the podcast and talk to him about his position as department chair and the recent rise in extremism in the United States. First things first, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Strauss. My pleasure to be here, and I, I think this podcast is really a wonderful program, so thank you for having me. Yeah, you know, we obviously have to start with your new role as chair of the political science department. And a lot of students and alumni have a vague idea about what it means to be a chair of an academic apartment. So can you give us and the listeners a little bit of a look into what it means to be the chair of the political science department? Yeah, well, I'm still learning. So I, let me put it that way. But I think of it in some ways as being a hub or a, you know, a sort of centerpiece for different kinds of relationships, both within the department and across the university. So, you know, in some ways, the chair is the bridge between the faculty and the administration, meaning the deans and the chancellor and the university. I think the chair is also a bridge between the academic staff, uh, you know, who often are running the nuts and bolts of the department, and again, the faculty, and also, I think, students, both graduate and undergraduate students. Some ways, I think it's, it's you know, it's a sort of the, the sort of hub of the department and a bridge building position. I think it's also a chance to set agendas. You know, I think the chair is able to set agendas. I mean, sort of more programmatically, I have budgetary authority and, and so forth. I think, you know, it's, it's different from being a regular professor. I think a professor, your main job is sort of research, teaching and, and service. But as a, you know, as, as chair, there is much more management, administration and so forth. So I think those are some of the key differences. Thank you for that overview. So it, it it seems like there's a really a lot of potential for whoever's holding this position to make some pretty notable changes or at least impact on the political science department. So why were you interested in becoming chair of the department? And what influence can resultantly this chair have on the undergraduate program and experience for political science undergraduates and even graduate students? Yeah, so thanks for the question. So why was I interested in being chair? I mean, I think I, I wasn't necessarily, you know, this is not something I necessarily hoped for in, in terms of my overall 
broadest career objectives, I think of it as a kind of service and responsibility. And what I mean by that is that I've, I've spent 17 years in this department at this university. It's been a great, and I have benefited enormously from previous chairs and from the leadership that they've provided. And I sort of feel like it's my time. And so I think in terms of why I chose it, some colleagues came to me and asked if I would do it. And I thought now is a good time in terms of my own work. And so I was really glad, and I'm truly honored to serve in this capacity. I think what can, you know, what can I do as chair? I think I can make our department a welcoming space. I think I can try to set agendas that are beneficial to to students uh, across, you know, both undergraduate and graduate students. I think it's an excellent space to begin with, and I hope I can continue to improve it. Yeah, definitely an excellent explanation. Can you speak a little bit to what you, or speak a little bit programmatically about how you hope the department can grow and how you can, you know, help stimulate that? Yeah. I mean, I think if I were to look at some of my goals as chair, I mean, I think the number one thing is that I need to recruit and retain talent in the department. You know, I mean, I think that's, you know, pound for pound, we have an amazing faculty. It's a relatively small faculty compared to our peer institutions. But if you look at each person in their field, they are awesome. They are leaders in their field. And we have a remarkable faculty. And we are going to undoubtedly, when the academic market resumes, there's going to be a lot of pressure to, to compete to retain our faculty. So I think on the one hand, I have to work really hard to retain the talented faculty that we have. And I think by the same token, I think I have to re- try to you know recruit more faculty and expand our department. Um, I think part of that conversation, I think, has to be to diversify our faculty. I think that diversity is an enormously important goal for me, and I think it matters for a couple different reasons. One is I think, you know, kind of representation is really important for creating a, a space where all students feel welcome. I think it's really important to have a diverse faculty in terms of bringing different voices and different Uh, experiences and backgrounds and insights into the conversation. And so I think it's the right thing to do on a number of different levels. And I think when one is thinking about inclusive environments, one is thinking about graduate student education, one is thinking about undergraduate education, in some ways it sort of starts with the faculty. And I think having a more diverse faculty is an extremely important goal for me. And I want to work really hard to get the authorization to be able to hire uh, hire, hire in general, and in particular to hire with an objective of diversification in mind. Um, I think, you know, related to that, I think creating an open and inclusive environment and a welcoming environment is really important. I think that previous chairs have done really excellent work on this question, and, and that's something that I really, you know, hope to continue and I think is really important. I think on the grad side and the graduate students side, we have our associate chair and director of graduate studies who's currently Nadav Shalef and will be Jessica Weeks in the coming academic year. I think that, again, I think we want to be able to recruit the best students to our program. And then once they're here, give them the opportunities to excel, right? That means research funds. That means good mentoring. That means providing the, the, again, the mentoring and the resources to be really great teachers in the classroom, either if they're leading discussion sections, or they are teaching their own course. I also think we have to be really thoughtful about the challenges of the academic market for many of our graduate students and being able to provide them with the training and mentorship to be able to pursue non-academic careers should they wish to. 
and and being open to that. And I think that's a pivot for many of us who kind of came through and got our PhDs and went on to academic careers. I think for undergrads, I think there are so many things that we want to be able to do on the undergraduate class, on the undergraduate side. I think number one, we want to be providing excellent courses that students want to take and that when they walk into those classrooms, whether virtually in person, that they're getting, you know, just an outstanding experience. I think we also want to be looking for extracurricular opportunities, whether through internships or other kinds of programming that allow students to grow beyond the classroom. But, you know, I funded, you know, I chose this profession because I love teaching and I love, and I, and I love teaching because I think it's such a special moment for, you know, not every student is between 18 and 22, but many of our students are between 18 and 22 years old. And I think it's an incredibly important time of one's life. It's a time to, to open minds. It's a time to develop critical thinking skills, to communicate well, to learn how to write well, to learn history, to learn about institutions. And so I think we have a fundamental mission to help you know, help students think and think differently and think creatively and problem solve and provide lifelong skills and curiosity to make them great citizens. And I really believe in that mission. And so I, as chair, it's really important to me that we be able to do that. Yeah, it definitely seems like a lot of really awesome goals that you're coming into the role with. One thing that I'm interested to hear about is you have been the chair only in the pandemic. What are some of the unique challenges that you have faced in, you know, trying to administer classes and keep the department afloat during the pandemic? Yeah, the pandemic has been hard. It's been hard for many different people. Look, I'm incredibly grateful that I, I have my job and no member of my family has gotten sick. And I understand that that many people have faced many more difficult circumstances than I have personally, or many of my colleagues have. But at the same time, it's been really hard. Many of us have children, younger children at home, balancing you know, work life and, and home life is a challenge. I think it, it's a challenge that sometimes can be, you know, I think there are gender differences in how that challenge is often experienced. And I think that's a, that's a challenge. I think it's also... Many, many of us have had to pivot, you know, from teaching in person to, to teaching online. And I think that requires a lot of work. And I think for students, it's been enormously challenging. You know, I think online learning has a place. And I do teach online summer courses and did before the pandemic. But I also think, honestly, it's an inferior way to learn. And I think many of us, many students, and I think many professors would rather be in person and in the classroom and have that engagement and have that and have the have that sense of energy in the classroom and that kind of interaction in the classroom, which I think is really different than being virtually being virtual. But I mean some of the specific challenges are that you know, some colleagues have gotten COVID and how do we help them get through it? Some students have gotten COVID. Some graduate students have had to be teaching in person when that what and they weren't comfortable doing so. I think that we are facing budget cuts and the sort of challenges around you know budgetary environment and the large whole financial hold that the university is will ultimately trickle down to us and constrain us in what you know and sort of what we can do. So those are I think some of the challenges. It's a lot of communication. I mean, just on the administrative side, there's just a lot of emailing going on and changing policies and and all that. And, and I, you know, I tend to think the university, the administration has done a good job and has been working hard and been responsive. But, you know, many of the policies have also changed and they change in ways that, you know, we just always, we're always sort of accommodating and adjusting our time and our schedules to the different policies. And I don't fault anyone for that, but it's also exhausting. And I think many of us are exhausted. And, uh, and, and so I think that's been one of the challenges. You know, I also think in terms of my own leadership style, I really value communication. I really value 
people to people relationships. And I think it's important for me as chair to build those relationships, to build trust, to build mutual respect. And I think in an environment that's entirely virtual, that's harder. And I also think department meetings or places where we're making collective decisions, I think it's challenging sometimes uh, in a virtual space to make those decisions and to have that sense of collegiality, which I think our department is one of the great strengths of our department. And so I think that's also, I think, another challenge is just sort of how to make collective decisions in this virtual space. And as I think we can all attest to, the pandemic alone would make these times incredibly challenging times. But this is only one of a multitude of issues that we as Americans and UW-Madison and its political science department as institutions are dealing with. Because, of course, in addition to the pandemic, we're also right now in the aftermath of this resurgence of the civil rights movement sparked by the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And then, of course, kept aflame by the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, a lot closer to home, and other continual events, shootings, and following protests. So you mentioned in one of your earlier answers how you see one of your goals as the department chair uh, to encourage diversity in the department and inclusivity. So I want to ask you, based on this context and based on your previous answer, What do you see the role of the university and even a department in addressing issues of racial justice and social justice? And additionally, what specific tactics or steps, perhaps including these diversity initiatives, are you putting in place to try and achieve these objectives? Yeah, this is a really tough call. You know, I think that that I think universities are primarily about education, about research, about outreach, and about ideas. And so in the way that I see universities, I don't think us as necessarily about advocacy. Like I think our job is to help people understand the world around them, to provide them with access to information, provide them to, but also provide them in a space that is inclusive and welcoming and open and so forth. So I, you know, I think I struggle with when there are things in the news that I really detest or really don't like personally. I don't always necessarily think it's the role of the department to condemn something. Uh, Now, people have different views on that question. I think that's sort of my view. And I think as political scientists, in some ways, we're perhaps more careful than some other departments in the sense that we study politics. And so we're not, I think many of us want to not be engaged in politics, but to be studying politics, at least when we are in our capacities as professors at a public university. And so I think I do draw a line between advocacy on the one hand and research and teaching and education on the other. And I fall on the side of kind of research and teaching. And that means being open to ideas and not, you know, and not pushing ideas necessarily on as the right ones or the wrong ones on our students and in what we do. But to your specific question, I think it's really important that we be teaching about these issues, that we be, that we be creating space to be talking about addressing thinking about these kinds of questions, about racism, about, about our institutions, about, uh, about questions of inclusivity, about questions of inequality, 
a question, questions of, I mean, I don't think we're really a, a department designed necessarily for questions of, of criminal justice per se, but I think the questions about, about again, about racism, inequality, and the way in which they interact with our political institutions and our elected officials, I think is absolutely appropriate and important for us to be talking about. So I think we have to be talking about these issues. We have to be teaching about these issues, but I think we also have to have a space where we can exchange ideas. So naturally, another large stressor or difficulty is the general divisiveness, partisanship, and even toxicity in our political environment. And of course, resultantly, we saw accumulation of this, not just in the election, but then in the following insurrection at the Capitol, where driven by misinformation, we saw hordes of Trump supporters essentially raid the Capitol, leading to the deaths of five people. And at this time, of course, we had a lot of questions and we took them even on this podcast to people in the political science faculty, asking them for opinions about the current moment and current events via their insights and their research. And I think this reflects this really larger demand for public intellectualism and a desire to have essentially, you know, people who really know what they're talking about, like political science professors, weigh in on these really difficult issues. But then that can sometimes mean taking a stance on these issues when they're facing an extremely partisan split and even in an atmosphere of toxicity. So how do you approach this issue of trying to apply the knowledge of the department without essentially violating these nonpartisan principles that we have tried to bake into it when sometimes that might mean casting your lot one way or the other if you're going to express your opinion or thoughts on it. Yeah, this is a great this is a great issue and I think you framed it extremely well. This is the biggest point I can make is I think our work is more important than ever. I mean, I think that we as a as a nation, as a collectivity on this campus, as a state, I think many of us are are looking to fundamental principles of politics and looking for trying to understand what our institutions are about what the fundamental principles of democracy are about, what it means to cooperate across partisan lines, to understand where the hatred and the polarization are coming from and how to manage it. And so, I mean, you know, just broadly speaking, like this is an incredibly important moment to be learning about politics and to be teaching about politics. And I think for each of us, that creates a responsibility to do that kind of work. So, I mean, I think broadly speaking, I think the work that we do as political scientists is extremely important. And I think many universities over the last 20, 25 years have really stressed kind of practical fields, right? They've stressed STEM, they've stressed the kinds of majors that are going to get you jobs directly, you know, have a kind of our feeders to particular jobs. And I think one of the things that we've learned is that it's really important to be understanding and thinking about what it is to be a citizen, what it means to understand history, institutions, how to think, how to debate, how to have disagreements, uh, how to have interpretations how to filter through information and decide for yourself, you know, what is right and what is wrong. I think that's really, really fundamentally important. And so I think, you know, from my perspective, I think that political science is more important than ever. I think our faculty do an incredibly good job 
of taking the responsibility of teaching politics seriously and carefully. And if you look at the people you've had on your podcast, or you look at the kind of work that's being done in the classrooms, I think that what you're seeing are people who understand these issues, are trying to break them down in a way that makes sense, and trying to create an environment for learning and thinking about them in a careful and responsible way. And I think, you know, our faculty are modeling what it is to be talking about these issues in a careful, evidence-based, logical way that is not necessarily dogmatic or whatever. And so I'm really proud of our faculty when I listen to them on your podcast or I see them interviewed or I see them quoted in the press. It's, I'm, really, I'm really honored to be a member of this department and I'm especially honored to be chair of the department. So I guess my answer to your question is that I think our responsibility is to be able to use our knowledge presented and do so in a way that is accessible to anyone, no matter what their partisan views are. Now, as you say, sometimes we have to make calls. And I think the important, the important point, at least from my perspective, is to create a learning environment that is open to a variety of political viewpoints. And it is not our job in any way, in my view, to say that, you know, it is right to be Democrat or it's right to be Republican or whatever, but rather to understand what a Republican point of view is or a Democratic point of view is or whatever. And I think if we're asked our opinion, if, you know, was the election, did Biden win the election? I think all evidence points to yes, right? And I think we can say that. I don't think that's a partisan statement. I think that is a statement based on our professional abilities. So I think sometimes we do have to make calls. I think we have to make them uh, to the best of our ability and to make them in a way that is uh, still encouraging of discussion and still encouraging of ideas and evidence and logic. I think it's interesting that the example that you bring up is the election, because as we know that there that there's an incredible percentage of people right now who, even though we know that this is true, Joe Biden was elected president, polls from NPR suggests that currently just a about a quarter of people who self-identify as Republicans accept this outcome. And I think that brings up this interesting conception of this post-truth moment that we're in, where, of course, there are things that are factual, but as a result of sequestering ourselves into our own media bubbles and the continual partisan lean of both cable and online news sources, et cetera, et cetera, it seems that people are kind of able to just shelve themselves into their preferred media environments and resultantly kind of have a truth for them while others in different media environments have a different truth. My question is, how does the political science department engage these concerns? How should a political science department that is, of course, in an educational institution, a university, a university founded on the principle of sifting and winnowing towards truth, how does that address this post-truth moment? I guess I feel like we should just keep doing what we're doing. I mean, I think that what we do in the classroom is that we teach about where the institutions come from, how they're constituted, how they play out, what interests are, what the rules are, etc. And we teach different ways of thinking about those, different interpretations, and we encourage our students, I think, to develop arguments and how to process information and to develop their voices. And I think that's what we should continue to do. 
what you're describing is a type of polarization that's happening through a bifurcated or you know multivocal media and people are not communicating across their differences. I really think that a university and, our, and as a department, that it's really important that we find ways to not have polarized spaces, that we have spaces where we can have discussion about these ideas, that we can have exchange about these ideas. And if someone were to come to me and say, you know, I don't think that Joe Biden won the election, I mean, that's a discussion that I want to have. I want to have with that student in a, in, in a respectful way. I would like that student to present the evidence that they have. And I'd like to present the evidence that I have. Not, in, you know, not to structure a debate between a, you know, a faculty member and a student. Maybe that came out a little bit wrong because there's some power inequities there. But the point being is that I think we want to have an exchange of ideas. And we do not, I think as a department, in my view, want to contribute to the polarization that exists across the political spectrum in the United States. And I think that's an important mission for us. Um, so I guess that's my kind of best answer to your, to your question. I mean, I also think it's important to recognize that as faculty members, we are also private citizens. And so I would make a distinction between what we do in the classroom, what we do in a kind of, in, in a sort of workplace space in which we are faculty members, in which we are employees of the state and so forth, versus what we do in our private space, right? And what we do in our private space, you know, is different and we should express ourselves however we wish in that space. The thing is a little different than our responsibilities as faculty members when we are working in a classroom or working in a department or working at a university. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. On this theme of rising extremism, I know you have experience working when President Obama in 2016 appointed you to the United States Holocaust Memorial Council, and you do work with, uh, you, know, you do research with human rights and genocide with your classes as well. So I'm interested to know, you know, especially with your knowledge of the cycles that, his, that we see in history of rises and falls in extremism, where we are in the current moment, you know, like in the context of the cycles of alt-right, because you know, I think that we can kind of point to 2016-2017 as the start of a rise in extremism and we're in this moment now. So can you can you I guess can you give us some historical context to maybe rises of extremism? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's necessarily a single playbook for the way that there's kind of radicalization or, you know, the rise of extremism in different places. I guess I can say, let me put it this way, I have been on the one hand, not surprised, and on the other hand, alarmed at you know the anti-Semitism, the racism that we have seen that has been embraced and it was on display in this sacking of the Capitol on January 6th and in other venues. And I say not surprised because I think on the one hand, we should remember that these are hatreds and prejudices that run deep and they've run deep in the case of anti-Semitism for thousands of years in the case of racism equally or race I mean the history of race is a little bit more recent but whatever I mean these are these are deep prejudices they don't go away easily and they are often ingrained and in multiple forms in our societies at the same time you know alarmed in the sense that it's been extraordinary to see these ideas back in circulation and back in circulation in such public spaces. And it's really disturbing, really alarming and really scary in many ways. And there are things that have happened in the last year in the United States that I never thought I would see in my lifetime. 
And I'm profoundly disturbed by that, profoundly upset by that, and profoundly worried about that. So I don't know where we're going. I mean, I think that I study, you know, I study genocide, as you said, I study civil war. I also have done some work on the US civil war. But the point being is that I have been deeply upset about the ways in which people talk about civil war in the United States. I've been deeply upset at the ways in which people are embracing violence as a way of trying to gain power. And I've seen those in many other places and people lose their lives. Not, I mean, on a relative basis, not that many people have lost their lives in the United States compared to other civil wars around the world. But the prospect and the ease with which people are talking about civil war in the United States is, is profoundly disturbing. It is profoundly disturbing. I don't think people have any idea what it's like to live through a civil war. And I worry about that. You know, I don't think we're going to face a civil war in the United States like we had in the 19th century. But, you know, the idea of having, you know, insurgency, terrorist-like organizations that are trying to uproot and, you know, lay mayhem and create terror and disrupt, like that prospect seems not out of the question. And I'm deeply upset about that, obviously, as as many people are. At the same time, there are many parts, there are many ways in which the United States is equipped to restrain that violence. And I think that, you know, I think this next period is going to be probably quite crucial in trying to be able to understand what the roots of those who are embracing violence and who have been radicalized and, and trying to, you know, crack down where, uh, using law enforcement on those who want to break the law. I think that's, that's really important. But I think, you know, the bigger, the bigger challenge is how do we establish our common ground again? And how do we, you know, go back to the earlier conversation, I think, you know, when you're looking at the type of depths of polarization that across that exists across the United States, where it makes it very difficult for people in families to talk to each other about politics, to have a common agreement about who won an election, about what is right and what is wrong in politics, like that, that type of polarization, that level of polarization is one that does breed violence. And I think it's, uh, it's very scary to me to see that in the United States. So I'm worried. I wouldn't be, I, I, I'm, I'm not to say, I don't think, you know, I think there are many paths forward right now, but I am definitely worried and more worried than I've ever been in my lifetime. <laughs> that sounds so scary. Um, <laughs> so on the topic of political violence then, what were your initial reactions as you watched the mob attack on the Capitol unfold? And then as we started to see videos and now we're seeing the litigation of it, what were your initial reactions, especially in the context of what you see in other countries with political violence? I mean, I guess my reaction is not that different to what I just said, which is that I have been shocked at the willingness of people with authority to flirt with violence and to not understand how quickly a spiral we can go down in which violence is the solution to political problems, in which you use violence in order to grab power. And I think that it has reminded me that institutions are there as guardrails against raw power and raw power and, and violence are similar. And people use violence to grab power and take power and, and control others. And what was shocking to me is to, to see, you know, to see our, polit- our political space get reduced to that 
in Washington, D.C., you know, get reduced essentially to using violence to get what you want and not respect the rule of law and not respect institutions, not respect political process. That was pretty shocking for me. I was pretty shocked, pretty shocked to see that in the United States. Not to say that I, you know, I'm not aware of problems in the United States, but that that sort of lack of fundamental agreement on the rules of the game uh, across the political class was surprising to me. It really was. Um, now, I think that there are many incentives and institutions and politicians that will try to steer us back to the common ground. People are, people are aware the dangers of going down this road. And I'm grateful for that. And I think there's a long tradition in the United States of democracy, and that's going to be very difficult to overturn, extremely difficult to overturn. And that's different from other places where I work and, and where, where people are trying to establish democracy, trying to establish the rules, trying to install, you know, instill a respect for the rule of law. Whereas I think those, that, those practices in the United States are very well established and quite deep. And so I think that one has to be also thoughtful and careful in, in sort of comparing where we are in the United States to other places. I, there's not a ready analogy that comes to my mind, right? This is not Weimar Germany uh, in my mind, right? The sort of pre-Nazi period at all. And I think people make that connection. I don't see that. I'm not saying that there aren't particular parallels in particular spaces, but these are not the same same situations, right? This is not Rwanda. This is not... You know, this is not uh, Venezuela, but, you know, the kind of backsliding that we've seen in the United States, the type of removal of democratic norms and guardrails and willingness to play with the electoral rules and the institutions. I, I've been surprised that it is part of a kind of backsliding playbook that we do see in other places around the world. So I, I don't know where we're going. Look, I don't know that I'm the best person to comment on that. I don't study American politics per se. But I would say as department chair, what I can say is that I do think this is a really important time for political scientists to be doing what we're doing and to be teaching about politics, teaching about political division, teaching about institutions, teaching about rules, teaching about norms, teaching about democracy. And democracy, we've learned, is fragile and that it, it requires, you know, it requires commitment. It requires people to be committed to it and to have and, and to have common ground within it. And so... I think that we can't take it for granted. I think many of us always have in the United States. And I, I study places where people are trying to establish democracy, right? And so I love democracy. Like I think democracy is really precious and really important. And I say that from having lived under dictatorships and having, uh, you know, and seeing what it's like to have a lot of political repression. So democracy, human rights, these are precious things in my mind. And, uh, and I and I do think it's, it's, it's valuable and right for us as political scientists to make those arguments about the value of democracy. That is a normative call, but it's, a, it's one I'm certainly comfortable making. I think when you say that you don't know which way this country is going to go in terms of the political temperature, I think that makes three of us uh, unfortunately, I, I left my crystal ball back in Minnesota, so I'm not going to be able to bust it out to figure that out right now. Um, but what I'm interested in asking based on that is, what indicators are you going to be looking for moving forward to determine if, say, like the political temperature in the United States is still increasing or if we are still backsliding democratically? Like, is the outcome of this impeachment trial going to mean something to you? Are you going to be looking at the 2022 midterms? I think that's the first time I've said that. Just continued indicators of political polarization. What's, what are you going to be looking at to make that determination? Well, I don't think the impeachment trial 
or to me, the 2022 elections and the impeachment trial, I think, are less important than the kind of what I'm looking at are the sort of non-constitutional processes that might be going on that are less vis visible. So to me, what I'm paying attention to is the kind of weapon stockpiling that's going on, the kind of language of, you know, we need to take back government, you know, we need to, uh, you know, sort of the uses and threats of the uses of violence are the kinds of things that I would be paying attention to, kind of clandestine networks that you see at the beginning of insurgency or you see in terrorist networks. Those are the things that I worry about, right? And I pay attention. I have no idea what's going to happen in the 2022 midterms. And I think as long as we're talking about political participation, as long as we're talking about elections, or as long as we're talking about, about rules and the rule of law, like that's democratic. Whoever wins those elections, I, I think that's, from my perspective, is totally cool. But to, you know, what I worry about is that the... It's the, it's the chatter about civil war. It's the chatter about the need to arm ourselves because this deep state's going to come for you in the middle of the night. It's that kind of conspiratorial thinking combined with arming that worries me, That to be honest with you. And I don't mean to scare you guys. I mean, I, don't, I, I feel like I maybe I don't want, I want to be clear. I'm not, I don't want to be misinterpreted. I don't, I, I truly, I'm not saying I don't know because I think it's going to be terrible. I'm just saying that in my lifetime, I haven't lived through a period where I have seen so much deep polarization across the political spectrum in the United States, so much open embrace of things like civil war and things like the need for violence in order to settle differences. And that, that worries me as someone that studies those things. But I think there are there's a big space between, there's a long distance between where we are now and where we could be. And I, and I, and I truly, uh, don't think that we're on the precipice of civil war or, you know, genocide or anything along those lines. I think we are a long way from that. I think, you know, I don't know, but that's my, that's my sense. We're almost running out of time. So we like to give uh, the people that we have on the podcast an opportunity lately to um, talk about something that we didn't ask you, something that uh, we probably should have asked you that we uh, haven't yet something that you think that the students and the listeners should know? Well, I, one of the things that gives me hope and that I, you know, really feel privileged to experience is actually our students. And actually, actually think many of our students are much less polarized than, than the rest of the country, or that's my experience of them. And I find in the classroom that, that students are genuinely curious they feel that this sort of this is a time to open their minds, and they're really hungry for different perspectives, really hungry for information, really hungry for ideas, really hungry and and willing to sort of embrace the challenges of the future. And that that gives me a lot of hope, actually, and and makes me love what I do in terms of teaching. And so that's I think one thing that I think is is positive. And I I have loved teaching at this university and have loved working with the students at this university. And I'm grateful whenever someone signs up for a class, I'm always, that I teach, I'm always sort of surprised if it's not required. So I'm, I'm always appreciative in that sense. Um, yeah. And I guess I'll just say that, you know, it, I don't know if I said this clearly enough. I mean, the impetus for this discussion is me serving as department chair. And, and I just do want to say that it is, it is truly an honor to serve in that role and, I hope that I can cultivate within the department a space of mutual respect, uh, a, a space where I think uh, I am able to kind of reach out and listen to the concerns of, of anyone in the department at any level 
within the department. Be also be willing to make tough decisions when they need to be made and to stick by them and to try to try to lead where necessary in that sense. Um, and so, yeah, it, again, it's a true honor for me to, to be associated with the department. We have, as I've said, a kind of amazing faculty. We have amazing students, both on the graduate side and the undergraduate. We also have incredible alumni. And, you know, it's been really an honor to see couple of our alumni being appointed to the current administration, but just more generally in my, in my role as chair, I have an interface with, with sort of with donors and with alums in a different way than I had previously. And I've really been amazed at the quality of their intellect, their generosity to the university and to the department and the mentorship and leadership that they provide to, to our current students and so forth. And so it is a really great, this is a really great community and, and, and one that is sort of, has been great for a long time. And I'm honored to do my part. Well, we're very happy to have you both in the position that you hold and on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on today. It was really, really great to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.